following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. The passage for our this morning comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And as you can see, we're going to unpack this passage in two weeks. We'll cover part one this week and then the second part next week. And the title is The Lost Sons. And starting from verse 11, it reads, And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father while he was a long, still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat. That I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came. Who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother, this your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see what your heart really is for each one of us. And give us the understanding of what the gospel really means. To penetrate through all of the ways in which we fool ourselves into believing lies. May you counter those with the truth of your word that helps us to see who you really are. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
So as we've been establishing in the first message I preached two weeks ago, Luke 15 is a series of three parables that are all told in, in succession. And they were clearly meant to be taken as one unit of teaching because they were all three triggered by a singular event that happened. In the first parable, Jesus talks about a shepherd who leaves his flock to go searching in the wilderness for his one lost sheep. And as I said in that first message, it's interesting that Jesus chose a sheep to represent us of all the animals that, could he, have, that he could have picked. And what seems to be particularly noteworthy of that selection is that sheep are rather dumb animals. That's just no, way to, no other way to say it. They are dumb, helpless animals. Uh, and as I pointed out, uh, when they're confused and lost, it's not uncommon for the sheep to stress out and as a stress reaction to pretty much just collapse on the ground and refuse to get up, even when the shepherd comes and finds it. And so when the sheep is finally discovered, the shepherd has no choice. He ends up having to hoist this animal, this helpless animal on his own shoulders and carry it all the way back home. And the point that Jesus seems to be making is that the sheep cannot contribute to its own rescue. It can do nothing to participate in this act of being found. The other major theme that is developed in this first parable is the celebration that takes place when they finally get home. There is so much joy in the shepherd's heart that he gathers his neighbors and his friends and hosts a huge party to celebrate the return of his sheep. There's a second parable we find in verses 8 to 10 of Luke 15 of this lost coin. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she lost one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's a lot of similarities here with this second story and the first um, someone has lost something very precious, just like in the story of the lost sheep, and is willing to go through extraordinary measures to find it. In fact, the stakes seem to be raised in this second story. Because in the story of the lost sheep, it's one that was lost out of a hundred. But in the story of the lost coin... It is a singular silver coin lost out of ten. Um, I think the truth is, as an American reader of this story, we have a really hard time wrapping our mind around what this is about. It's almost nonsensical to us. Because we live in a very uh, money-driven economy that, uh, to which coins almost seem worthless, right? Because we're dealing with cash all the time. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of accidentally dropping a penny and you kind of think, is it worth picking it up, you know? I mean, it's like if it kind of rolls down the street or down the sidewalk, you're like, ah, you know, someone will find it and have some spare change. But in Jesus' day, they pretty much operated on a cashless society. Um, you made your own clothes. 
You cooked your own food. You grew your own food. And you pretty much traded and bartered for everything else you needed. It wasn't really a cash-based economy. And so money was actually a very rare commodity. And so for this woman to lose a single silver coin was huge. It was disastrous. And so she literally turns the house upside down in her attempt to find it. And like the story of the lost sheep, when she finally finds that lost sheep, uh, finds the lost coin, uh, she celebrates. She celebrates with her friends. So these two themes recur again. The coin is utterly helpless in participating in its own discovery, right? Coin can do nothing. It just has to sit there as an inanimate object until it's found. And then there is this enormous celebration because of the joy of the person who found that which was lost. Well, as we approach our final story of this lost son or these lost sons, we have to remember what exactly was it that triggered Jesus to tell these three stories. And we find it in verse 1 through 3 of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. The setting is that these religious leaders were grumbling, were complaining, because Jesus was eating with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the kind of people that normally good people don't associate with. And as I mentioned in that first message, eating a meal with someone doesn't seem like all that much of a big deal to us. But in those days, it was huge. Because when you shared a meal with someone, you were in essence saying, I accept you. I I, I accept you as a friend. I, I draw you into fellowship with me. You see, it would have been one thing for Jesus to minister to people like this. You know, to show up at a village market or a street and preach to them. And maybe heal some of them. But that's not where Jesus' relationship with these people ended. He invited them into his house. He went over to their houses. He attended their birthday parties. He went to their weddings. He hung out with them. He joked with them. He had company with them. And that was scandalous to them. He said, you don't do that with people like that. Don't you get it, Jesus? Don't you know what kind of people these are? You see, the battle lines, according to their own perspective on good and evil, were pretty clearly drawn in the sand. On the one side, you had the good people, the religious people, the people who went to synagogue every week, the people who believed that they were keeping God's law and basically condemned anyone who didn't follow in their footsteps. And then on the other side of society, on the other side of the line, you had those people who chose a very different path in life. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, quote, sinners, whose sin was much more obvious to everyone else. And that was the way the camps aligned themselves. You're either a religious good person or you're a sinful evil person. And the question is, Jesus, which side are you on? Because by the company you're keeping, we're not really sure about you anymore. Which camp you belong to. I think even in our days, this is sort of the way the battle lines get drawn when we talk about good and bad. 
Are you one of the good people who go to church, who do the right things, who obey the rules, who live respectable lives? Or are you one of the bad people who chosen the dark side, who live in open sin and even flaunt it and make fun of religious people who feel otherwise? What's interesting to me is that Jesus arrives on the scene and he rejects these categories. He absolutely rejects these categories. He says, this is not the way I see the world as religious good people who keep the law and wicked people who, quote, are sinners. Especially through this final story of this prodigal son, he says, listen, it doesn't matter which side of the line you stand on. The truth is you're all lost. You're all lost. I have to rescue every single one of you. It's interesting that classically the story that we just read this morning is typically called the parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son. But a strong argument could be made that a better title would be the parable of the lost sons. Because there are two sons in this story. And Jesus' point is that both of them are lost. Both of them have to be rescued by the Father. And so for this morning, we're going to look at the rescue of the younger son. And the next week, we're going to look at how the father rescues or attempts to rescue the older son. The story begins with a man who has two sons. And the younger one basically tells his father, I want my portion of the inheritance now. Give it to me now. As modern readers, it's hard for us to understand the full weight of the younger son's demands. Because in those days, the inheritance of the father was only divided after he passed away. And so for the son to tell his father, give me my inheritance now, was in essence to tell his father, dad, why don't you just die already so that I could finally get your stuff? I mean, that was literally like what the son was saying to his dad. I wish you were dead so that I could get my money from you. And I don't have to wait until you die. The only response to a demand like that from a son in those days would have been for the father to beat the daylights out of this son and then kick him out of the house. That's what a typical Middle Eastern father would have done. But as we're going to see over and over again in this story, this father does not act like a typical Middle Eastern father. Instead, he honors his son's request and he gives him his portion of his inheritance. Now, you got to understand what this actually meant. Because in those days in Jewish tradition, the eldest son got twice as much as all the other siblings. So if there were two sons, it means that this younger son gets a third of the estate. Now, in order to give a third of the estate to this younger son before he's dead, this means he has to liquidate his assets. It means that he probably had to sell a big chunk of his farm, a big chunk of his land, land that he was still farming to feed his own family. He had to sell in order to cash out. He probably had to sell a bunch of his animals and a lot of his other prized possessions in order to gather enough cash to give to his 
disobedient son. But that's exactly what the father does. By his inconsiderate actions, the son shows he cares nothing about his father. He cares nothing about the relationship that he has with him. All he is thinking about is himself. He is the epitome of a spoiled, self-centered child. Well, his pockets filled with his father's money. The younger son packs his bags. And we're told that he journeys to a far country. And there in that far country, his life quickly spins out of control. And it's not long before he blows his entire inheritance on what is called reckless living. And then famine hits the land, a severe famine. And with no relatives to turn to in this foreign land, his only recourse is to find a job feeding pigs. That particular detail would have been utterly disgusting to his Jewish audience, who considered pigs to be among the dirtiest of animals that there was. And the young son feeding these pigs is so chronically starving that he actually begins to envy these pigs, wishing that he could eat the slop that he's feeding them. It's hard to imagine a more tragic and pathetic person than this younger son. He has publicly shamed and disgraced his family by demanding his inheritance before his father was even dead. He then squanders this enormous sum of money with wild and reckless living. And now he's broke. Now he is slowly starving to death as an unclean pig herder in a foreign land. You see, in this younger son... Jesus is painting a picture of a person who has made so many bad choices for himself that he is utterly and hopelessly lost. Someone who appears, in essence, to be beyond redemption. This guy is beyond saving. There is no hope in his life. He has burned every bridge, every possible hope of salvation. That is the picture that Jesus is painting for us in this younger son. And you know what? The truth is, the story of the younger son is our story, isn't it? Because like the younger son, all of us understand what it feels like to have our hearts wander for a far country. The truth is that despite the security of a warm home, a warm bed, and warm meals, and the love of a father... We also dream of a distant country, a place where there are adventures and pleasures waiting for us. We can't really even imagine. It's interesting, about a decade ago, um, this actor Jude Law uh, was married to this actress, Sienna Miller. And they were, I think, widely touted as the most beautiful couple in Hollywood. I mean, it's hard to imagine a more beautiful man and a more beautiful woman getting married. Um, but in 2005, the news broke that Jude Law had cheated on Sienna Miller with his 26-year-old nanny. And immediately, everyone was curious to know what this nanny looked like. 
Because what kind of woman could be so staggeringly good-looking that Jude Law would leave Sienna Miller to have her? And so it was a shock when the tabloids finally got a picture of the nanny because this is what she looked like. Now, the nanny was not ugly by any means, right? But she is no Sienna Miller, okay? She is not, all right? I mean, if you really did a comparison, I don't think there's really a battle there. And that was one of the things that was viral through the tabloids was, what was Jude Law thinking? And I think every guy thought that, you know? What a fool to choose that girl over his wife. At one level, we look and say, that guy was a fool. But the truth is, I don't think you have to search that much more deeply in your own heart to realize how stories like this happen, right? Because there is this wandering of the human heart that finds it difficult to stay at home. You know, the grass always looks greener on the other side of the fence, doesn't it? And that's the heart of this younger brother. I have everything that I need in my father's love. And yet my heart is drawn to that far country. My heart is drawn to what I cannot have or do not have. But what I imagine would give me the happiness that I really long for. But as the younger son discovered, that dream, that fantasy was alive. Because when he finally got to that distant land and lived the life that he always thought was the good life, what he ultimately discovered was that that life was a lie as he sat there wallowing among the pigs. Samuel Johnson writes, Of all that have tried the selfish experiment, let one come forth and say that he has succeeded. He that has made gold his idol has satisfied him. He that has toiled in the field of ambition, has he been repaid? He that has ransacked every theater of sensual enjoyment, is he content? Can any answer in the affirmative? Not one. Not one. The story of the prodigal son is the story of a wandering child looking for something that would really satisfy in life. Taking him to a far country. And in that country, discovering that the things that he thought would give him happiness ended up only robbing him of what he once had in his life. The far country promises everything, but in the end, it takes everything from you. Having hit rock bottom, the younger son comes to his senses, we're told. Suddenly, as he's sitting there in the filth and among the pigs, the memories of his home that he grew up in begin to flood through his mind. And he comes to his senses. And he says, why am I sitting here in the mud, jealous of what these pigs are eating, when my, even my father's servants have more bread to eat than they know what to do with? And so he hatches a plan. He hatches a plan. And I want to say this. At first, it sounds like the son has taken the first steps to true repentance. Acknowledging his sin and his unworthiness to be 
called his father's son. But when you look more closely at what the son actually plots, you realize this is not repentance. First of all, it's clear that the son still has no clue of the heartache that he has caused his father. He's not thinking about the broken relationship at all. All he's thinking about still in his planning is himself because his motivation is actually not sorrow and repentance. It is just raw, sheer hunger. That is the motivation for the younger son. He wants to return home because there is bread at home. That's why he wants to make his way back home. It's also clear that he's actually working out the terms of a deal that he wants to make with his father. Listen, he's a realist. He knows what's waiting for him if he tries to go back home. So he knows he never dares ask his father, listen, can I just come back home? So he figures out, listen, maybe if I tell my father this, can I just work for you? Can I just work for you? If you will let me back into your estate as a hired worker, then maybe, just maybe, after enough years, you might take me back and I can earn my way back to you. You see, he knows that his crimes are too great for forgiveness. And so he'll strike a deal with his father. You see, the son is not asking for forgiveness. He is not looking for mercy. He's looking for a negotiation with the father. Say, I'll make a deal that you can't refuse. I'll work. I'll I'll work for food. You can pay me. I'll do the work. And so that's the son's plan, to return to the father and strike a deal. With his plan in place and his lines memorized, the younger son leaves for the far country and starts on his long journey home. But while we're told he is still far away from reaching home, the father sees the son. And we're told that the father runs to him and embraces him. The picture that we're given is that from the day that the son left, the father never stopped looking at that far horizon where his son disappeared. And every day stood at that place, watching for any sign of his son's return. We barely notice one detail of the story that we very easily miss. And it's this part that the father ran, that the father ran. Um, In those days of Jesus, men just didn't run. They didn't run because they wore these long, ornate, flowing robes as the elders of the village. And in order to run, you would have to pick up that robe and reveal your feet and your legs. And men never showed their... That was a a deep sign of shame to show your legs in public. And so Middle Eastern men never ran. They never ran. Children run. Men do not run. But what we're told is that this father runs. He gathers his robes and not worrying about any shame, runs to his filthy, pig-herding son. And he begins to kiss him and hug him. 
And you get the sense that the son is utterly confused by what's happening here. He doesn't think that this was the reception that he was going to get. But he finally gathers himself and he launches into the speech that he has been rehearsing this whole time. And his son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But here's the interesting turn in the story. The father doesn't let the son get past this one line. Before the son can reveal the terms of his negotiation, the father interrupts him with his own speech. And the father says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see, putting the robe on his son, putting the ring on his finger, putting the shoes on his feet, and killing the fattened calf was sending a clear message. You are not coming back into my house as a hired hand. You are coming back fully reinstated as my precious son that I love. Many have struggled with this third story of the prodigal son because it doesn't seem consistent with the other two stories. You see, what I had told you at the beginning of the message was what? The sheep does nothing to participate in its own rescue. The shepherd must go find it and bring that helpless sheep back home. The woman searches for the coin and finds it. In other words, the pattern is this. Something is lost and is unable to find its way back, and so it must be rescued. But we get to this third story, and it doesn't seem to fit the pattern. Because if it fit the pattern, the father should be the one that goes to the far country on a search party and finds his son wallowing there among the pigs and rescuing him. But that's not the way the story plays out. The way the story actually plays out is that the son decides to go home himself. And so in this third story, it almost sounds like the son saved himself by coming to his senses and deciding to go home. But it's clear from the story that Jesus says, no, this son is no different than the lost sheep or the lost coin. He also was lost and was found. And the question is, how so? How can you say that the son was found when he is the one that actually came back to the father? The reason why the son is found is this. Even if he came from that far country and went back to his father, he was still just as lost at the doorstep of his father's home as when he was in that far country living with the pigs. Because you see, in his heart, he still really, in essence, I think, felt that he had done nothing wrong. He still didn't understand what he had done. He still was trying to save himself. He was still thinking about only himself, saving himself. And so he comes with a plan to negotiate with the father the terms of his reinstatement. There is no repentance there. There is no seeking of forgiveness. It's not until he encounters the unconditional love of his father that he is truly finally found 
Because for the first time, I think, the son realizes that he was lost. Because for the first time, as his father is hugging him and kissing him and putting that ring on his finger and that robe over his shoulders, understands what he has done. I think for the first time, the son understood this line that he had rehearsed. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. In other words, that is how the son was found. By the unconditional love of the father that opened his eyes to see his true lost condition. I have no right to ask you anything. I have no leverage here. I have nothing with which to bargain my way back to you. All I can ask is for your love. All I can ask is for mercy. You see, the son who was lost was finally found by his father's love. Philip Yancey writes, in one of the last acts before death, Jesus forgave a thief dangling on a cross, knowing full well the thief had converted out of plain fear. That thief would never study the Bible, never attend synagogue or church, and never make amends to all those he had wronged. He simply said, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus promised, today you will be with me in paradise. It was another shocking reminder that grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Ask people what they must do to get to heaven And most reply, be good. Jesus' stories contradict that answer. All we must do is cry, help. And I think that's one of the most important messages of this parable. There is nothing that we can do, no argument that we can bring to God that that can make a case for our own salvation. In fact, nothing will keep us further from God than our attempts to bargain our way to heaven and to try to prove our worthiness to be saved by him. It's only when we realize that salvation is purely an act of God's grace alone and all we can call for is his mercy that we understand what it means to be found and rescued by God. There's just one last detail in this story that I want to focus on as I close out this message this morning. As with the first two parables, the final parable ends with this beautiful picture of a lavish banquet thrown because of the joy of the father in discovering his son. Earlier at the beginning of the message, I talked about this hunger that is in every one of us for this far country. A longing that is inside everyone. It's not just a longing, but even what we could call a restlessness. That it seems like no matter what situation that we find ourselves in, we're always looking to the other side to think, there's got to be more. There's got to be more out there for me. Maybe another lover, a different job, a different life. And yet, anytime you chase after those things, they always leave you unsatisfied, unfulfilled. And I think one of the messages of this parable is also this. Our hunger for the far country is actually a hunger for home, the place of God's love for which we've been created. I think that was one of the great discoveries of this younger son. 
he couldn't understand what he had in his father's love until he walked away from the father and discovered the brutality of that far country that promised all the hopes that he ever dreamed of and yet left him naked and beaten and completely abandoned. And it wasn't until he must have been sitting there in the banquet of his father, experiencing the depth of that love, that he finally understood what he really longed for all the time in his life. That longing for that far country was actually a longing for home, a longing that only his father could provide for him. Tim Keller writes, Home is a powerful but elusive concept. The strong feelings that surround it reveal some deep longing within us for a place that absolutely fits and suits us, where we can be or perhaps find our true selves. Yet it seems that no real place or actual family ever satisfies these yearnings, though many situations arouse them. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. C.S. Lewis says, there is this nostalgia for a life that we've never lived, a longing for a home that we've never known, a wandering of a heart that is in search of a place called home that all of us are searching for in this life. And we try to fill that emptiness with everything that we can find in this world. But as Lewis writes elsewhere, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Let's pray. I want to just invite you to reflect in your own life as we've seen the story of this prodigal son, the story of these two lost sons who living under the shelter of a loving father still have not found their way to salvation. The story of the prodigal son or these lost sons is the story of a wandering heart 
that has all the security of a father's love and yet is not satisfied. It's the heart of searching, the heart of longing. It's the heart of a person that says, there is an emptiness so deep inside of me, and I long for it to be filled. I am in search of a place that I have dreams of, that I imagine exists somewhere out there that will satisfy this pain and this emptiness that I feel inside. And maybe that describes your life, your journey. Your life could be summed as a deep ache, a deep longing to fill this hole that is deep in you. And you know, the marriage is good and you're having the children thing and the career is fine. But maybe there's still an emptiness that these things just don't fill. And the mind begins to play its games. A different lover a different job, different location, a different life. One of the things that Jesus is telling us in the story of the prodigal is when you go to that far country in search of those things, when you finally get there to what you think is going to be that destination, what you're going to uncover in that far country is a bunch of lies and deceptions, mirages, illusions, of things that hold so much promise but will never satisfy. And hopefully, as you are there in that far country, you come to realize that what your heart was really aching for was home, the Father's love, something that God alone could give you because you were made for Him. You were made for that. You are made to sit at a banquet that he set for you. So that's my sincere prayer as we close out the service and reflect on where our journey has taken each one of us. Can I challenge you that if there is still that aching, that longing in your heart, if there is still that attempt to fill an emptiness with the things of this world, you can journey very deep into that far country before you will finally realize these things will never satisfy. And the invitation of God is this. I am setting a banquet for you. I'm setting a table for you. I want to nourish you and feed you and comfort you. I want to extend my mercy and my forgiveness and my love to you and envelop you in my love. And in that love, you will discover that this is what your wandering heart had been searching for all along, an emptiness that only God could fill. So let me just invite you to spend some time in prayer and just come before God and say, Lord, my heart is prone to wander. My heart is so hungry to be filled, this emptiness. Give me the faith to understand that that could only be filled by you because I was made for you. We just pray that for a few minutes and our worship team will come and lead us in a time of response. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.